Welcome to the Capital Insight Podcast with Jenny Casson and Michelle Timish, two capital raising experts on a mission to demystify and equify the world of investment for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Listen in as they sit down with fundraising veterans and share with you the success stories and cautionary tales of outside-the-box capital raising. This is Capital Insight. Hello, welcome to the Capital Insight Podcast. Today we're here with Logan Yanaviak who's someone that I've known for many, many years, and she has been involved in so many different kinds of creative impact investing projects. I just love hearing about everything she's been working on. I know we won't have time to cover everything, but Logan, why don't you tell us your story of how you got into impact investing and and some of the things you've learned along the way? Absolutely. It's great to be here, Jenny. Um, it's you know wonderful to have the opportunity to talk with you about some of these topics. I know we've known each other for many years, and I've really appreciated your perspective on alternative capital raising. Um, and so, yeah, look forward to, to diving in. Yes. Yeah, so my journey in the impact investing space really started with an interest in land conservation. I, um, in, in high school, was really struck by the way that um, land use was, land was being developed in the region that I grew up, which is the Triangle region of North Carolina. And it really um, it got to me at a core level, like the way that we use land um, and the way that we were promoting uh, strategies that really are about strip mall development and kind of um, overtaking farmland, forest land, and other working lands and open space in favor of these um, development strategies. And I just had this core question of like, why economically and as a society are we choosing this route? Um, so that was kind of my entry point into, into the impact space. Um, I started as I think many people do with an idealistic sense of, um, of what was possible. And I dove in from the nonprofit perspective first. I worked at an environmental think tank in Washington, DC for the first uh, four years or so of my career and learned a lot about different tools to, um, to, to help bring in different revenue streams for, for conservation work like carbon credits and uh, payments for ecosystem services, really trying to think about how the economic system could solve for the neg- negative externalities uh, that basically we, we foist on our ecological and social systems and reprice um, ecosystem services so that we really are valuing them in our economic and financial systems. So that was interesting. But while I was there, I learned a lot more about the capital markets and um, there were a couple experiences that led me to want to shift my focus to being more squarely involved with um, investing. And the way that I saw that initially was um, through forest land and, and agriculture investments. So wanting to join a firm like a, a timber investment firm or an agriculture fund that really focused on land conservation, but from a private investor perspective. And so that's kind of what led me to Yale Business School and the uh, School of the Environment, where I I merged uh, forestry and MBA program over the course of three years. And all along the way, I was just learning more and more and more about the capital markets and just 
really trying to understand what motivated investors, what kinds of investment groups existed in, in the capital markets and like what would be, um, what would enable more capital to flow in the direction of positive impact. So learned a lot along the way. Um, and then after I left grad school, I worked for Morgan Stanley for a bit and then um, found my way to a family office network, which is kind of where a lot of things started to click in terms of um, potential, like larger potential areas for shifting our economy because um, family offices, and in, in my opinion and the opinion of many others is that the, the families and individuals who hold a lot of wealth in our society um, are really not as encumbered as other investment groups in many ways around what they, what they can do with their capital. And you're dealing with, instead of like a large institutional investor, um, like a pension fund, you're dealing with an individual or a family and the support network that they've built around themselves to invest. And so um, when, I, when I was engaging with these family offices, I realized that you know, they were asking, you know, questions about how to invest to have an environmental or social impact and that there was a lot of um, opportunity to help them shape their strategy and, and think more broadly about what they wanted to invest in. And so um, there, yeah, I just learned a lot of lessons there about capital raising and, um, and starting to really put the pieces together around like, okay, if we want to have an impact in our society, we, we have so many problems we need to solve. We've got climate change and population uh, impacts and, and all these other things. Like how do we start organizing large pools of capital um, to, to, to drive change? And so um, from there, I, I started a, um, a sell-side advisory business called Provenance Capital Group. And I spent a couple years working with a team to help organize um, essentially a, a banking group that could drive capital from family offices and institutional investors and high net worth individuals into the food and agriculture space. So kind of building on my knowledge base there. And then um, I left last fall and have been doing a variety of uh, capital raising and advisory activities, including with you, Jenny. And so, you know, to summarize, I, I think um, all along the way, my, my focus has been like and asking this question, how do we change our economic system? Um, you know, my, my initial focus was land conservation, but of course it's so much broader than that. Um, and then who is most poised to, to start driving more capital? And then on the other side of it, what kinds of companies financial instruments, funds, et cetera, can we help um, bring, bring to the market and support so that we can drive capital for change? So yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell, like what I'm interested in and how I got where I am. Wow. Yeah. And I know like you barely scratched the surface on all the cool things that you've done. Um, so I have a couple questions. So number one, what was the contrast you saw when you were working with family offices? Like, what was it that family offices were able to do that you were seeing wasn't as possible in the more institutional funds? Um, and, you know, what was the positive aspect of them having that greater flexibility? And then number two, 
tell us more about what you're doing now to kind of leverage everything that you've learned and how you're working with um you know to to move capital oh and i hate to do this also to you but before we even get to those two questions which i can remind you what they are <laughs> i want we want to be careful about uh about uh words that people terms that people may not be familiar with so what you said sell side mm -hmm. and i just want to make sure everyone understands what does that mean a sell side um firm yeah so it means working more to support the companies and funds to bring capital in so people say buy side and sell side. So buy side is usually working from the investor perspective and deploying capital. And then, um, you know, very coarsely sell side means uh, raising capital or bringing capital in. This is how I, I think about it. So sell side advisory firm, um, and like in our case, I, I would just think about like, it's a, a smaller boutique firm, like, you know, a lot of investment banks or all investment banks have, um, a banking group that does private placement or that helps um, companies go public. And that's all about, that's called like sell-side advisory. Cool, thank you. Yeah, we really wanna demystify these things so everyone knows uh, more about what's actually going on in this very complicated industry of finance. But yeah, so tell us more about, uh, what was the contrast you noticed when you started to see what family offices were able to do versus more like institutional funds that had more constraints? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it fundamentally comes down to the number of stakeholders that are involved in the decision-making process and what their objectives are and just how uh, complex those that governance structure is. So there's nothing wrong with having a lot of stakeholders, of course. And I think in many cases, it's great to have checks and balances in um, you know, any deployment of capital by side process, if you will. Um, but I think the thing that makes family offices in a good position to move more quickly is the fact that they are, for the most part, not as encumbered by some of those stakeholder processes because it's their families. I mean, they have their own family dynamics um, and some of the groups that help them or advise them, but ultimately they're the decision makers. And um, so they have a, a lot of ways they can, they can deploy capital. They can do venture capital and private equity and traditional public market investing. So they, they have a lot of levers they can pull often a lot of capital. I mean, family offices, um, I don't know if there's a strict definition, but um, typically like a hundred million or so to start their own family office. Um, so, you know, you're dealing with, with people with a significant amount of wealth and then not necessarily having to go through all of these um, decision-making processes that like a pension fund, a state pension fund or a university endowment would need to go through in order to decide on, on their investment strategy. The second part of the question is what are you doing now? So you, yeah. can, you can get into the, um, you know, the work you've been doing lately with the, um, you know, the, the constellation work and all of that system sensing. Yeah. I have in a parallel uh, life, I've been exploring a variety of different tools, healings, meditation techniques um, that have helped me tap into sources of connection and understanding that I think aren't um, widely available in our Western society. 
And it started with an interest in, in psychology in um, high school. And I got really interested in Carl Jung and did some research on um, personality types and just sort of always had an interest in that. And I found that um, as I learned more about investing, I realized that it was, it was a lot more based on human psychology than I originally anticipated. Like when I got into the investing world, I thought it was a lot of quantitatively minded people who were making a lot of decisions based on mathematical equations and, and such. And that's true, but it's also, if you look at even the impact that, um, you know, COVID had and, and all these different macroeconomic impacts on the public markets, you really do see how investors, you know, make decisions based on fear or um, enthusiasm about particular uh, investment strategies or, you know, seeing how Bitcoin and, and other uh, kind of interesting new investment strategies are coming online where people get really excited and then, um, you know, the market sort of takes over and uh, does its own wacky things. And a lot of that's based on on the psychology of humans. Fundamentally, it's more of a collective psychology. But then when you get into the private um, space, meaning like non-public market investing uh, into private deals and funds, for instance, then I think you start to really see how investors um, get bring in their own like fears or enthusiasm around risk and return, for instance. So like investors are basically um, when they're making investments, they're thinking about the risk return profile and a lot of, especially in the early stage investing space, a lot of that's based on comparable deals that have been done in a similar industry. It's based on who else is investing. It's based on hunches that people have that a team works well together. So in all of those ways, you're seeing the human psychology come out. And while there's a little bit of attention paid to some of that, um, some of those dimensions, not a lot is paid. And I think we are, we are asking, um, we are asking people to kind of ignore some innate kind of sensing mechanisms and, um, and intuitions and such, and call it like gut feelings and, and things like that. And it's, we sort of, um, we don't give enough credence to those senses that we, we inherently have. And so my interest has been in exploring tools that could be um, brought into both the capital raising process from the, from the entrepreneur's side, and then also the investor perspective. Um, and I can dig into a little bit more about like what I what tools I, I've found useful, but I just wanted to lay the groundwork on that. That's really fascinating. I, I love that. I agree with you. How does that impact? I know you do a lot of coaching. Um, you're a really good coach and entrepreneurs seek you out for help and advice in preparing to talk to investors and whatnot. How does this new, how does this knowledge and interest of yours in the psych, you know, on the, the psych side of it inform how you um, approach your work with entrepreneurs? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think there's, there's definitely layers to it. Um, I think in, in many ways, one of the first things that I think um, 
anchors people in thinking about things in a more psychological or um, energetic way is confidence. So we've all had the experience of freezing in front of someone or freezing when we were going to give a talk or something like that. And people are picking up on your confidence level on not just a conscious level, but like using their own kind of animal instincts and energetic selves or part of themselves. So while it's, it's, it's kind of like a deeper aspect of us um, that's reacting. And so I often think about it and speak about it. And from the perspective of when you're going out to raise capital, just as an entrepreneur, if people are, you know, if people aren't um, resonating with your confidence level and aren't really kind of, um, they don't trust what you're saying at kind of a core level, they're likely not going to want to invest. There's a lot of other reasons they might not invest too, but they're, especially at the early stages, people are investing in the team and they want to be able to trust the people leading at the helm of that. And so I think that kind of like can help people get, um, get more focused on the need to pay attention to their, uh, to the power dynamics going on to their level of confidence, et cetera. So can you give us an example of how you would help uh, an entrepreneur kind of work with these dynamics that they may not be aware of um, to, to have more success with fundraising? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think there's some more straightforward and then there's some like some deeper work that people can do. Uh, the first, I mean, we were just talking about confidence. I think um, one of the things I've, I've noticed just helps on a practical level and is, is just practicing a pitch. Um, a lot of people go in again because they're not maybe as confident uh, yet. They just go into a pitch and say way too much and just try to kind of brain dump on the person. And I think, you know, inherently humans are looking for inspiring stories. Um, we've gotten into a very scientific, quantitative um, um, kind of aspect of ourselves in, the, in, in recent modern history, but like what really motivates people at the end of the day are stories and um, especially ones that have hope. And so I think uh, I've heard a lot of people pitch with telling, uh, talking about a lot of problems and then waiting a long time to get to the solution and how they can help. And so even things like switching to like the solution first and being really concise and telling a motivating story about how this is how this is applicable at a broader level or how it's connected to larger patterns. I think that practicing that as like an orienting mechanism for pitching is can be really beneficial. Um, yeah, I just don't find that people practice their pitch enough. Uh, and then, you know, one of the tools that I, I didn't have a chance to talk about yet, but that I think would be really it's a, it's a very easy tool once you start using it, but it just takes some orientation um, is system sensing and constellation work. So the, the motivating factor for this is if you're, if you're um, say that you're, you have like a group of 10 investors that you want to go out to, and you're kind of feeling like a few of them are so, so interested and a couple of them are really excited. And then a few have just turned you down or, and said, no, you could start to kind of use 
the system sensing tool to like sense into maybe why that is with some of the investors. And like, instead of just accepting where they're at, tuning in and using this process to like uncover if there's more dynamics going on under the surface, whether it's them or you or something you're missing in the system to kind of like um, realign and see if there's other pathways forward. So that's that's an example. Um, so let me just back up and, and talk about system sensing and constellation work, if that would be helpful. Um, so, so system sensing is a broad term for somatic approaches that engage with the deep and often hidden wisdom of a system. It's working with the felt senses um, and it, it can kind of be understood as a visceral aptitude that involves intuition and emotions and draws on our innate capacity for being in relationship to and listening more deeply uh, to the elements of a system. And there's some interesting background um, reading that if people are interested, they can do, but I'll just kind of keep it high level for now. And um, I think especially in our society today, we, we tend to gloss over some of these um, pieces of information that come up and don't take the time to really sit with them and listen to the system itself. So this is kind of like a way to do that. So I'll pause there. There's any. Do you, yeah. Do you see that that's useful on the investor side uh, when it comes to really trying to align investments with values? I know that sometimes there is a disconnect between the actions, historical actions of investing and what one talks about is very important to them as a core value. And we see now a shift toward more impact focused investing. Are you finding that that tool, the system sensing is also useful on the investor side to help with that alignment? Absolutely. And um, a team and I uh, are actually working on embedding this with some investors through the American Sustainable Business Council. And I think it, it can be useful in so many different contexts. I've used it in just personal decision-making. Um, I, I used a constel systemic constellations, which is like a subset of system sensing to make a decision on where to move. Um, so, and, and then I've used it also with um, a relationship. I, I was uh, trying to work through some dynamics with a founder that I'd invested in and I did a, a, a constellation around it and it uncovered so many pieces of information I hadn't seen initially. So I've used it personally and, and just found a lot of benefit, but I think absolutely the investor community could really benefit from this from both the perspective of due diligence. Um, as you're diligencing a company, it can, it can bring up um, different dynamics that you might not have seen that could be, could uncover risks. Um, I think it can help see like connections between areas of impact that people are interested in that they haven't really delved into before. It can help um, with networking, just kind of figuring out where to spend your time um, and what groups you're most interested in aligning with, like say angel or investment groups. 
um, who you resonate most with, that kind of thing. Wow, that's really interesting. It seems so um, so innovative to be taking these concepts and bringing them into the world of finance. And I'm just curious, like, how has it been received as you've brought this up? Um, I'm sure there might be some people in finance that feel like, oh my God, this has no place in this conversation. Just like what have has been the reception as you started to bring this up in, in groups of investors? Yeah, it's it's been interesting to, so I've only most recently been bringing this up in more conversations. I would say I've had maybe 10 conversations over the last six months or so with investors or entrepreneurs. Um, I feel like uh, most people say they're interested and can see the potential value, but the I think the, the core um, block is that you need to have an experience for, for yourself. It, it can sound abstract until you try it. And so I think people, you know, have to have to have some exposure to it. So that's why we're pilot testing an offering within the American Sustainable Business Council's Living Planet Working Group. We're actually going through an exercise um, to show people some of the functionality and, um, you know, just give them a, a taste of what's possible. And so, yeah, I would say TBD, but I, I would say as, as soon as people have an experience, they, they often see the, the value in it. I want to actually, I, I would say as soon as people have an experience, they're blown away by it. I've recommended it to also just friends of mine, and they always report back that it's been incredibly helpful. And is that, um, I'm, I'm not familiar with the work, although it's very intriguing to me. Is this um, something that you think, I, I mean, sometimes everything's better if it's facilitated, right? Is this work that people can do on their own? I think it's best to have a facilitator to start. I mean, I'm sure there's YouTubes and stuff you can, you can pull up, but I started my journey with uh, Luea Ritter and Nancy Zamorowski. Who, are, who have started a group called Collective Transitions. And so they kind of introduced the concept and I've done my constellation and system sensing work through them. And so they have, um, you know, you can do a session or they have uh, training programs as well. Wow, that is so awesome. I'm so glad that you're bringing this broader conversation to the world of finance. Anything you'd like to share in terms of tips for investors who maybe are new to even thinking about being more um, empowered around their investing um, and or tips for entrepreneurs who want to find super conscious investors? Absolutely. Well, I think one of the things I've seen and, and experienced that is at the heart of capital raising on both sides is there's a lot of pressure uh, misconceptions and blocks around money in our society. And those who have money to invest are often um, working with a lot of guilt or uh, pressure to, if they're interested in impact, have like um, a legacy or to make sure that they're living up to the responsibility of investing that capital. And often those who are in need of capital um, who don't necessarily have a lot on their own 
are nervous, um, unconfident about how to raise capital, how to approach the process. And so there's a lot of, um, just a lot of <laughs> confusion and uh, complex emotions that I think come with, with raising capital and, and investing capital. And so I think bringing everyone back to the fact that especially in the early stage investing space, it is so much about relationships and that there are, um, you know, ways to start thinking about your network and um, thinking and just reminding ourselves that we're really at the end of the day, we are, especially in the early stage investment community, we're asking people to, to, to bring in new concepts and get them going. Like we're jumpstarting new ideas. And the, uh, the other side, we're asking people to trust us in bringing those new ideas to the market. And so that core relationship and that foundation of trust is central. And I think that's why these tools, some of the tools I mentioned are so important, like being centered, being confident, um, setting the tone with asking deeper questions about um, the process that's that's happening, because I think we're missing a lot of that in um, the way investing is happening right now. I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, with you about the the uh, how our thoughts basically you know we've all been cultured whether we intentionally or not we've all been cultured about money and attitudes about money and particularly in this country where we don't it's, it's taboo to discuss those things people have a lot of hidden beliefs that when they go unexamined it's very difficult to move beyond maybe some of those beliefs that are holding you back. So kudos to you for diving in in that way. I think there's a, a real healing component that you bring to it. Um, it's been such a pleasure having you here, Logan. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Appreciate it. Do you have any questions for our securities lawyers and capital raising experts? Call the podcast hotline and leave us a message at 866 552-7726, extension 5. You can also send other inquiries to podcast at jennycasson.com. We'd love to hear from you. Music for the Capital Insight podcast is still searching by Damon Criswell via Audio Hero. Thank you for listening to Capital Insight with Jenny Casson and Michelle Timish. Until next time.